I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, once again, John chapter 6, <clears throat> we will read beginning at verse 60, John chapter 6, verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. May God bless the reading of his word and the preaching of it for his glory. <clears throat> we are kind of on the home stretch of John chapter 6 here. These verses and those that remain give us some further insight into the audience that Jesus had there that day in the synagogue in Capernaum. We left off reading verse 66, but the next verse speaks of that group that is called the Twelve. And those that are called his disciples then in verse 60 and uh, in verse 61 is a group distinct from the twelve. We often use the word the disciples, meaning those twelve who became apostles. Of course, uh, Judas was the, the exception. But these verses help us to distinguish between disciples and disciples. In fact, we might even see something of a larger group even than this, this larger group known as disciples. Some of the people in and around the synagogue in Capernaum on this day were probably local people who had not followed Jesus at all. They had not been included among the 5,000 plus who had followed him the day before over to the opposite shore of the Sea of Galilee <coughs> and had not witnessed the miraculous feeding there the day before. The, the group gathered there in Capernaum on this second day in John chapter 6 included those who were not disciples in any sense of the word. They were 
perhaps the population in general, even including some Jewish leaders, no doubt. And they would all, the whole group would be included in verse 41 with the, the description of the Jews. And in verse 52, once again, the Jews. So think of this, of this very large circle and then a smaller circle of those who had followed him the day before and who were in some sense followers or disciples or at least uh, loosely associated with him in some way. And then, of course, there is the, the smaller circle and not sure if we would put that just inside these other circles or if they're a whole separate circle over here, but these that are the 12. And so these verses that we have read lay out to us a dramatic turn of events. And it begins with more murmuring in verse 60. The word murmur is used to describe what they say here in the following verse, is that these disciples murmured. But what did they say? They said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Upon hearing what Jesus had said, and probably especially referring to his telling them that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood if they are to have eternal life. They said, this is hard. This is a hard word. And hard here doesn't indicate hard to understand. It wasn't that they didn't understand him. It's that they did to some degree understand him. And it was hard for them to believe it. It was hard for them to accept it. They found his words offensive, repulsive, intolerable. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And again, it wasn't that they had difficulty in hearing him. It's that... They couldn't bear to listen. The word hear here indicates the idea of bearing and enduring. This is more than than we can stand, that we can endure these things that he's saying. They say in so many words, he's not worth hearing anymore. Who can hear it? And they are not just saying, we can't endure what he's saying. They say, no one should endure what he's saying. Who can hear it? No one should listen to this man any longer. He has nothing to say of significance. What he says is insulting to our intelligence. It is incredible and unbelievable. <coughs> Has anything changed in 2,000 years? 
Isn't this exactly what people say today? Modern man reads statements like these and he reads the, the, the Bible generally and reads of creation, for example, reads of redemption. And what does he say? Why, no one should pay any attention to this. Who can bear to hear these, these tales? We have a snapshot here of the heart of man in all generations. And what was hard was not the sayings of Jesus so much as their own hearts. The truth of the matter was their hearts were hardened. They had hearts of unbelief. And Jesus will expose that here in, in a few more verses. Those who find the sayings of Christ and the teachings of God's word to be intolerable, incredible, hard to believe, the problem is within. The problem is not with God. The problem is not with Christ. The problem is inward in their own hearts. What these people needed was a new heart to believe. What sinners need today is a new heart to believe what Christ has said. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and my sheep follow me. These were obviously not his sheep. How much better would it have been if they had said, Master, we're struggling. We want to believe the truth. Help us to believe. Tell us more. And instead, they show their hardness of heart. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And this is the last thing we hear from the lips of these people. This is their last quotation here in John chapter 6. This is the end of their part of the conversation. They end with a murmur. Oh, what a sad way to end. What a sad way to end life on this earth. What a sad way to face God with a heart of murmuring and unbelief. Now, as we begin to consider Jesus' final words to these people, let's notice first his knowledge of their hearts. As in verse 41, uh, where they murmured at him, he, he said... Uh, or it says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus understood what they were thinking. Uh, 
The Jews murmured at him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered them. They are striving among themselves again in verse 52, as we saw last time, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus knows their thoughts. He hears their murmurings. His knowledge was perfect knowledge. And we see this in various places uh, throughout his public ministry. Earlier in chapter 2, it says that Jesus needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Again, back in chapter uh, 5, in verse 42, he says to them, uh, perhaps some of these same ones, but on a different occasion, I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. Certainly, the divine mind of Christ was, is, always shall be omniscient. He knows everything about everything and everyone because he's God as far as his human mind and his human uh, thoughts and perception was concerned, that's what we seem to be looking at here. His human nature was informed, it says, from the beginning, from the beginning of his public ministry. That's the wording used there in verse 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And it says in verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it. From the time that they began following him, whenever that was, he knew all about them. He knew the unbelief of their heart. Let's just pause and ponder this question. The Jesus who knew the hearts of people in John chapter 6 knows the hearts of every one of us here today. What does he see? What does he know about your thoughts? Does he hear murmurings? Does he see unbelief? Or does he know that your heart is true and sincere toward him, that you love and worship him. Can he say, here is one who has the love of God in him, or here is one who has the love of God in her? May it be so. And let us consider also what patience and long-suffering he demonstrated toward these people up until this point. Though he knew them from the beginning or knew from the beginning who believed and who didn't believe, who would continue as a disciple and who would not continue as a disciple. 
He knew who would turn in unbelief and murmur and walk away. Nevertheless, he showed great compassion toward them, care and concern. He taught them. He he healed their sick. He fed them. And what an example we have then to follow. To exercise patience as he did. Let us not be surprised when our patience is is not appreciated and is not rewarded with lasting fruit. But let us seek to be patient and caring nonetheless. Now, we come to Christ's last words to these uh, disciples who were, at this point, former disciples or soon-to-be former disciples. The first thing he says in verse 61 is, "Does, Does this offend you? And I must confess, I'm kind of spoiled by the the red letter uh, edition of of the the Bible that I use. It's very helpful to see what Christ is saying, and there's this this parenthesis of explanation there in the last part of verse 64, and then the the conclusion of what Christ says. And no doubt, the first part of verse 64 flowed right into uh, verse 65. But he says here, first of all, does this offend you? He asks this question, do my words make you stumble? Does it make, do my words make you trip and fall? Is my message offensive? Well, we know that the gospel is offensive to natural man. It is always offensive. It is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The message of Christ offends our high opinion of ourselves. It offends our pride. It offends our sense of of self-merit and self-righteousness. It offends our illusion of our own ability and our own worthiness. This gospel offends us by telling us that we are lost, we are in bondage to sin, we are unworthy of God's favor, we are in ourselves without hope. It tells us that we are the problem, not the solution. It tells us that Christ alone is our hope. He alone is the solution to our problem. And that our only plea to God is for mercy. And we need grace. We do not want what we deserve, but what we don't deserve. Yes, this message offended his hearers that day. 
What they did hear and understand, they found offensive, a stumbling block to them. He follows up with another question in verse 62. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? And before we get into the meaning of this, just note that we have here the doctrine of his pre-existence or the pre-existence of his divine nature, his eternal pre-existence as Son of God. And we see references to that all through John chapter 6 here when he says things like, uh, I came down from heaven and the Father sent me and so on. We've seen that a handful of times here in this chapter already. But what does he mean then by this question? What if you see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Well, this is kind of a challenge to relate this to the whole context here, but I think that the Lord is saying in so many words this, I have told you that I came down from heaven and you don't believe it. You find that offensive as well. You find that unbelievable. What will you think if you see me ascend back into heaven? Will that prove anything to you? Will that convince you? Will that prove to you the truthfulness of my words? Will you be convinced? And it's something of a rhetorical question because the answer obviously is no. You will continue in your unbelief regardless of all the evidence that I will give you. Again, he's exposing their hard hearts and their unbelieving hearts. Then he goes on to say in verse 63, gives this explanation, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And again, writers are are challenged Commentators are challenged to to follow the the line of thought here from one sentence to the next. But I believe it's best to understand uh, the Spirit here at the beginning of verse 63 to be the Holy Spirit. And though there isn't much mention or teaching about the Holy Spirit until John 14 in the upper room with the disciples, we do have... Hints here and there, such as this and such as we uh, mentioned in the previous hour from John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that quickeneth. It's as if he's saying to these people, you need a work of divine grace 
of divine power brought to be exerted upon your souls. You need that effectual call that we considered in the previous hour. You need the quickening grace of God, the grace that brings to life. Because that which is flesh profits nothing. He's saying in so many words, I'm not talking about everlasting life coming through anything fleshly, coming through some kind of cannibalism of my body. That approach, that that whole outlook profits nothing. Not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a spiritual quickening wrought by the Spirit of God in the spirit of man. And the words that I speak unto you are spirit and they are life. In order to believe on Christ, there must be an infusion of life. Which only the Spirit of God can give. When he says the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He seems to be saying that his teaching must be spiritually understood. And I take spirit here to mean spiritual. The words that I speak unto you, they are spiritual words and they are life. He says, I'm talking about spiritual matters and spiritual life, not carnal matters, not fleshly matters for carnal or fleshly life. Let me read you some words by J.C. Ryle that I think are helpful in in understanding the whole uh, emphasis that Christ is giving here. He says, quote, the words of Christ brought home to the hearts of men by the Spirit are the great agents employed in quickening and giving spiritual life to men. The Spirit impresses Christ's words on a man's conscience. The soul is not benefited by bodily actions, such as eating or drinking, but by spiritual impressions, which the Holy Spirit alone can produce. In producing these spiritual impressions, the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, especially employs the agency of Christ's words. And hence comes the great principle that His words are spirit and life. End quote. Well, do you find the words of Christ to be spirit and life? Do they resonate in your spirit? Do you find your heart drawn to Him by His words? Are they wonderful words of life? Are they words that are irresistible? And it's one or the other. To these people, to these who are called uh, His disciples, they couldn't hear it. They couldn't hear anymore. They'd heard all they could stand. But for one in whom the grace of God is at work, we want to hear more and more. And we marvel and rejoice in 
his words. And then in verses 64 and 65, he exposes their unbelief. He says, but there are some of you that believe not. And then we have this parenthetical explanation for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. And in that last verse 65, he is obviously reiterating the same truth of verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. That being drawn and that coming (coughs) is a gift of divine grace. It is a work of God in the soul. Again, back in chapter 3, we see the same truth expressed this way by John the Baptist. He said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Well, that's very parallel to what Jesus is saying here. No man can come to me unless it's given to him from heaven. No man can believe on me. No man can receive my words into the depths of his soul unless it's given to him by God in heaven. He says the same thing in so many words uh, later on, again in chapter 10. He says, Ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And as we said when we were considering verse 44, I think we can say the same thing here in verses 64 and 65. That the unbelief of these followers is a commentary more on them than upon Christ. It's a commentary upon their hardness of heart. And he's exposing that to them. He's showing them their unbelief. He's declaring it. He's, he's expressing it in verse 64. There are some of you that believe not. Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. It's as if Jesus is saying to these these proud religionists, the impulse to believe on me comes from God. And if you don't believe on me, then it's only a, a manifestation that you are devoid of the very God whom you claim. You are devoid of the God whom you say that you worship. If anything ought to have given pause to these people and made them search their own hearts, it is this kind of saying.
he exposes their hardness of heart as being in such a degree that they are not able to hear him, not able to come to him. No man can come unto me. And far from excusing them in their sin and excusing their unbelief, their inability accuses them. As I said a few weeks ago, it only adds to their culpability. If you sense your inability to come to Christ and believe on Him today, that's no excuse for not coming. Rather, if you sense your inability in your own hardness of heart, then let that drive you all the more to seek Him and to call out to Him and to plead with Him for mercy and that He might show His mighty power in the face of your unbelief. Well, This is the last thing that these people heard from the Lord Jesus. And it's as if his words sealed them in their doom. It's really a heartbreaking thing for us to read here. We've seen what their last words on that day were. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Jesus' last words to them are, there are some of you that believe not. And that's why I said that no man can come to me unless it's given to him by my Father. And then the next thing we read in verse 66 is this, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. From that, upon hearing that, The solemn words of verse 65 were the last words they heard from the lips of Jesus Christ. Do you ever read scripture and think about yourself and your own soul? What will be the last words you hear from Christ? Do not let them be these words that this crowd heard on this day. But rather, keep listening to his words. Keep reading his word. And by faith in him, go to be with him in glory forever. And you will never hear the end of his words. For we shall see him as he is and we shall commune with him Forever and ever. Oh, it's a sad thing to think of people hearing last words from Christ. And what's even more sad is that it wasn't just one or two people. It says it was many. Many of his disciples. Up until this point, Christ's ministry had grown And his following had grown and everywhere he went there were more and more people listening. 
And as we saw at the beginning of this chapter, he couldn't even get some peace and quiet and rest and, and time for a meal sometimes and, and time for a night's rest sometimes because of the multitudes that were following and seeking and in one way or another desirous to see him and hear him and be with him and perhaps bring their sick ones to him for healing and so on. But now the ranks of these loose followers suddenly in one day is greatly diminished and reduced. And some writers call this the shift from popularity to opposition with regard to Christ. Let us consider that the number of those who claim to be followers of Christ is sometimes greatly reduced from generation to generation. And let us not be surprised when we see such things happen today. Let us be determined to be faithful to Him no matter how many are not. And we'll see more about that in the remaining verses, Lord willing, next time. But notice again it says, Many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. They retreated. They went backward. They went back to where? They went back to their life that they had lived before Jesus came along, before his public ministry began. They went back to their old ways. They went back to familiar things. They were no longer listening to him, no longer following him, no longer disciples in any definition of that word. They'd made up their minds that they couldn't take any more. They couldn't bear. They couldn't stand to listen to him any more. They determined he was not worth following. And you think what a a dramatic, drastic change this was from 24 hours earlier. In the earlier part of this chapter, the day before, we see them eager to put a crown upon his head. Have him as their king. Couldn't wait for a coronation. Now, a day later, they couldn't wait to get away from him. They couldn't wait to be rid of him. Here today, gone tomorrow, as J.C. Ryle put it. The attitude of many toward Christ today is just that shaky, just that Uncertain, just that unpredictable. Don't let that be your attitude toward him. What had made the change? What had happened in those 24 hours? 
Well, we could say it this way. That Christ proved to be a disappointment to those who were interested chiefly in politics and welfare. They wanted an earthly king who would feed them, give them a free lunch every day. And there are multitudes who follow Jesus as loose disciples today because they think that they will gain some earthly advantage as well. But Christ is always a disappointment to those who are interested only in politics and welfare. Beloved, we need to get on a spiritual level and understand that his words are spirit and they are life. And not be hung up on carnal earthly things, but spiritual and heavenly and eternal things. Those who understand him in that way and follow him in that way will not be disappointed and will not go back and walk with him no more. And so we close this message with this sad scene. What a sad sight it is. As I picture it in my mind's eye, it it is really heartbreaking. To see these people who in some sense have been disciples shutting their ears to anything more that he has to say, turning their backs to him, going back, walking away, And they fade into the streets of Capernaum. And we never hear from them again. We will only hear from them on Judgment Day. And it's even more heartbreaking to see the same thing happen today, and it does. You can think of cases, and so can I. of those who after listening to the gospel for a while, instead of committing themselves to Christ fully, they reach a crossroads and they go the wrong way. They go against their own soul's best interest. Instead of becoming a fully committed follower of him, believing him at all cost, they turn back. They get enough. And they go looking for something else or someone else. And they have no more desire to hear from Jesus Christ. And I'll just say this, don't let that be you. It's 
the saddest thing to see. Are you at a crossroads today? If so, then I urge you to surrender to Christ and be a committed follower of Him. And don't turn and go back and walk no more with Him. Draw closer to Him. Cling to Him. Don't be the, the soul that is pictured in the parable with the stony ground that is all excited for a while, ready to follow Christ, and then trouble comes, difficulty comes. Maybe it's trouble from without, persecution. Maybe it's trouble from within, your own heart of unbelief. And in any case, there's no fruit. The plant withers away. The question that all of us should ponder here in our own hearts today is, am I moving forward with Christ or am I removing away from Him? Am I going backward or forward? Am I retreating or am I advancing with Him? Answer those questions with an answer with which you will be happy on Judgment Day.